The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I think it's especially important during the holidays because for the most part, at least when I look at myself, it has been a journey for me to get listening. My meditation practice has shown me over and over again that mostly I listen to my own mind. And my own mind, as Annie Lamont says, is a dangerous neighborhood. We shouldn't go there alone. <laughs> it goes off in all kinds of different directions and has all sorts of things to say. I was mediating today a very challenging case with a bunch of lawyers and uh, I talked to them in the beginning about listening and how especially in conflict we don't listen to what our conflict partner is saying. Mostly we listen to what we think they ought to be saying if they would just listen to us. I have been drawn to the topic of listening lately because I came across a book by an author who I've read another book of several years ago, a practitioner named Mark Nepo, who's written a book called The Book of Awakening, which is a daily 365 days of uh, beautiful readings and poetry and uh, sort of meditation practice focused. And he's written a book called 7,000 Ways to Listen, Staying Close to What is Sacred. And he came upon that title after a conversation with a Nigerian linguist named Olasopi Olorandra, who he describes as saying that uh, Olioranda brought languages alive like tropical plants and spoke of them as rooted things that sprout and reach in all directions for the light, and marveled that there are 7,000 living languages on earth, and those are the, only the ones we know of. And Mark Nepo went home that night after having dinner with Oleranda and said, hmm, there must be therefore 7,000 ways to listen. The Buddha has this to say about listening in the Mulapariyaya Sutta, the root of all things. In that sutta, he describes the 24 different ways that we distort our perceptions of what we're actually experiencing. The multiple ways in which we hear things that are impermanent, as permanent, things that are creating suffering as pleasurable, and things that aren't really about Daniel as being about Daniel. The three characteristics. The way we hear all of conditioned experience as opposed to being open to listening to what is arising 
we color, we have a lens cap over our experience in those three ways. And in this sutta, the root of all things, of the 24 ways that we distort what we hear and experience, one of them is our listening. He taught, she perceives the herd as the herd. Having perceived the herd as the herd, he conceives himself as the herd. She conceives herself in the herd. He conceives himself apart from the herd. She conceives the herd to be mine. Delights in the herd. Why is that? Because he has not fully understood it. Now it seemed sort of paradoxical to me when I read that because if we perceive the herd as the herd, then we're experiencing life as it is. But he's really saying to us, yes, we're experiencing life through those three characteristics because we're having it be, in my case, about Daniel. So what I hear is either about me or is apart from me or I'm in it or I'm separate from it. I distort it in those characteristic ways. And so I hear what is impermanent as being permanent. Oh, I can hold on to this relationship because this is finally the one. And this is it for my life. It's permanent. Or I will always be healthy and vibrant and young and alive. So I don't need to worry about eating well or exercising or getting enough sleep because I'm always going to be healthy just like I am now. Or avoiding working and just hanging out and enjoying myself won't ultimately cause suffering for me. Those distortions that we make of life. So how then do we listen? Mark Nepo has this beautiful poem called The Appointment. What if on the first sunny day on your way to work, a colorful bird sweeps in front of you down a street you've never heard of? You might pause and smile, a sweet beginning to your day. Or you might step into that street and realize that there are many ways to work. You might sense the bird knows something you don't and wander after. You might hesitate when the bird turns down an alley, for now there is a tension. Is what the bird knows worth being late? You might go another block or two thinking you can have it both ways, but soon you arrive at the edge of all your plans. The bird circles back for you, and you must decide which appointment you were born to keep. In listening to the hungry tiger of the mind, we begin to discover that it is insatiable, that regardless of what we give it, 
regardless of how we treat it, its voracious need to have more of that which is impermanent and more of that which temporarily causes pleasure and ultimately creates suffering and have that be more about a statement of who I am drives us. And our mind constantly reminds us of what we believe we already know of our opinions, our beliefs, our ideas. My conversation is about me in the deeper sense of being driven by what I think is so and what my perspective is and what my views are. We listen from what we know and we listen to our own fears, our worries, our regrets. And these three characteristics drive our listening. So that begs for me the question, well, how do I learn to listen beyond these three characteristics? And I was reminded in preparing this talk of one of my favorite old movies, uh, City Slickers. And there's a wonderful scene in there. If you remember, Jack Palance played Curly. And Billy Crystal played the city slicker, Mitch. And they're talking around the fire. And Curly growls, Do you know what the secret of life is? No, what? Mitch replied. Holding up his index finger, Curly says, This. To which Mitch says, your finger? One thing, just one thing, Curly tells Mitch. You stick to that, and everything else don't mean squat. He didn't say squat. <laughs> That's great, says Billy Crystal. But what's the one thing? That's what you've got to figure out. <laughs> About... Three months ago, I was mediating a case involving uh, cleanup of the San Francisco Bay, an environmental case, where a company that um, manufactures goods that we all need and use was accused by a local environmental organization of not cleaning up its property well enough so that when the rains come, there was a runoff into the bay. And what this environmental organization does is send people around to look at companies and see if their practices of putting barriers around their property to keep overflow from going into the bay and having uh, tanks that will hold water and purify it before it's released into the bay to see if those practices that they have are the best practices that are available to keep the water in our bay clean and keep us having a few fish and a few birds that survive. And the law firm that represents this environmental organization sent a young associate to survey this company. And she saw that they were really working pretty hard to do the right thing. So she proposed to them that if they continued to make progress and continued to do the things they were doing, 
that her environmental organization would enter into an agreement with them not to sue them for two years, to give them a chance to clean things up. And they readily accepted that deal, and they struck a bargain and signed an agreement. She somehow, and I never understood how that happened, she ended up leaving the law firm, and they sued this manufacturing company 15 months later. So you can imagine that they weren't so happy. And we were in a mediation at federal court in San Francisco, and the lawyer for the company and the lawyer for the environmental organization both had representatives of their clients there. And we were working out, trying to work out a solution to the case. And they made some progress, and then they got massively stuck pretty far apart. And I was thinking, what can I do? How can I help them? because it's going to cost both of them so much in legal fees to continue this fight. And I listen. I have learned to focus on listening. And it's an art not to listen to your own mind in that situation. And what kept arising for me is the plaintiff, the environmental organization, has not been true to their own principles by suing this company when they entered into an agreement that we won't sue you if you keep making progress. We won't sue you for 24 months. And they sued them anyway. And that was sort of the odor that was surrounding the case. But I said to myself as I was pacing out in the hall trying to figure out what to do, you can't say that to them. That's just going to make them really angry. Nothing else occurred to me. I was really stuck, and they were stuck. So I trusted that I was listening, and I walked in, and I just laid it out and said, you haven't lived up to your principles. You agreed, and now you acted in violation of that agreement, and that action is coloring this high, entire process. So you're stuck. And I gave my best Southern Baptist preacher's son sermon in the nicest possible way. And I was silent waiting to hear what they, how they were going to respond. Were they going to just walk out because now I had come down in a judgmental way? And to my surprise, the lawyer stood up and said, I agree with everything you've said. So, more about that in a little while. I've discovered through that experience and many that led up to it that there are really four simple but incredibly difficult aspects to listening. So that when you're at your families during the holidays, when you're with people that you have some 
relationship with and some difficulties with, if you can remember these four very simple but challenging steps, I promise you it will make a difference. The first one is to give up certainty. I like to start really hard. <laughs> so, we mostly listen from what we know. We believe we know, and our mind tells us that. We believe that we've had various experiences and we know certain things about people, and I've known my mother for all of my life, and I know who she is and how she is. So I listen to her from what I know. In the space of what we know, all that's available to us is to be right. And we choose to be right because we're certain that we know. And in rightness, there is no relationship. Because I'm over here knowing and you're over there being wrong and in the unknown. There's a wonderful classic T.S. Eliot poem, or series of poems, called The Four Quartets, in which he says, You say I am repeating something I have said before. I shall say it again. Shall I say it again? In order to arrive there, in order to arrive where you are, to get from where you are not, you must go by a way wherein there is no ecstasy. In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. We have a really hard time with that. We apply what we know to each situation that arises in our life to keep us safe. We need to be safe. We need to know. So we bring our certainty, we bring our knowledge into each situation. We don't come into it with the openness of uncertainty and not knowing. I don't walk home or go home to my wife of many years with the uncertainty of who is she going to be today? Who is she tonight? Who is this lovely woman that I love? Rather, the throne way of our being is to walk in knowing, oh, there's this person I married, and I know her well, and there she is being exactly the way I know her to be. We listen from what we know. We listen from certainty. And so there's judgment and there's separation. But how can we let go of what we know? How can we simply walk in and say, wow, let me be surprised. The second step 
the second aspect is we listen for our connection to life. Now, what do I mean by that? If I come from a place of certainty, if I come from knowing, I already am certain and I'm already sure of how things are going to turn out. I don't have to bring any curiosity. I don't have to allow myself to be touched by life. I don't have to be open to what someone else is saying. I'm just someone who knows. Can you hold the tent of your life open to the entire firmament? Can you allow yourself to be connected to all of life from a place of knowing? Absolutely not. Can we allow ourselves to be connected to life from a place of not knowing? Curiosity? Yes, because in that place, we can be shaped by life, we can be changed by life, we can be open by life. The mystery is where awe and wonder lives. There is no mystery in what we already know. There's no awe and wonder and surprise and joy in what we already know. There is mystery, there is awe, there is wonder in the vast unknown. And when I bring that to any relationship, no matter how long it is, and especially when I bring that to myself, then I can open to a deeper connection with life. When I was a young public defender in Charleston, South Carolina, the first public defender in Charleston, South Carolina, having, as you heard, graduated from Harvard Law School, where they don't exactly teach you how to try cases, they just teach you about the theory of law, which doesn't do you a lot of good in a courtroom. So I'm trying to figure out how to defend criminal cases. And I bought some books, and I read the books, and I read a book on cross-examination. And it said, never ask the ultimate question. And I read that, and I read about what the ultimate question was, and I said, hmm. I think I know this. And a week or so later, I'm trying a very difficult case, and a witness for the prosecution for the state is on the witness stand, and I'm cross-examining her, and she is saying everything that I need to prove the truth, which was that my client was not guilty. Of course he wasn't guilty, because he was my client. And she is just going right down the path and saying everything I needed her to say, and I am so excited. And so I ask, and so, Mrs. Jones, blah, blah, blah. And as soon as the words came out of my mouth, I went, oh, that's an ultimate question. And I said, Your Honor, I object. <laughs> and the judge laughed, and the prosecuting attorney laughed and said, Mr. Bowling can't object to his own question, Your Honor. 
And the judge, when he stopped laughing, said, you're right, objection sustained. But in the meantime, the witness had been so shocked that she didn't respond to my question. So I quickly reframed it and took the ultimate out of it and skated right through. And my client was found, as he should have been found, not guilty. So when I came from what I knew, I walked blindsided into the surprise of life. I had to get it experientially to really know it. And getting something experientially requires me to be uncertain. I was certain. So I got whapped by life. And that happens to us over and over. And we miss when our dear ones actually grow and develop and change because we can't see it. We're so certain of how they are. We miss when we grow and develop and change, but we can't see it about ourselves because we're so certain about what we think and how we act and what's appropriate for us and what we believe. We totally miss our connection to life. And here's why. This is point number three. It's so important, it's incredibly important to listen to what is not said, what we don't hear. So about 10 years ago, I was running the conflict resolution program at Duke Law School and I had come there trying to save my marriage, coming back from where I'd been at Cropalo in Massachusetts and Washington, D.C. and other things. And being from South Carolina, my wife wanted to return to South Carolina. And I got as close as I could. But I didn't listen well to the people who had been running that program. And when I got there, I discovered that they had there was no money left. It was a mess. Things were really bad. And I was deeply depressed and deeply discouraged and deeply uncertain. But listening from what I knew. And a friend of mine was having a conference for mediators interested in contemplative spiritual practices. And he said, and he and I had taught mindfulness for lawyers several times. So he wanted me to come to Kalamazoo, Michigan, to this conference. And I said, I just can't come. I'm a mess. My life is a mess. I can't come. And he called again and importuned me to come. And I said, nope, can't do it. And then one day, a plane ticket arrives in the mail. So I say, well, I guess I'm going. <laughs> but I get on the plane, and I am in such bad shape, I can't even look at anyone or pay attention. I fly from Durham, North Carolina, to Chicago, and then get on a smaller plane to fly from 
Chicago to Kalamazoo. And in the seat in front of me is the back of a woman's head. And I can hear her voice, but I can't hear a word that she's saying. And I'm mesmerized by that voice. And I begin to sort of wake up enough to look around the plane and see that by appearance and by just my intuition, most of the people on this little plane are going to this conference. And when I get off the plane, indeed the woman in front of me, sitting in that seat, was also going to the conference. She was teaching law at Stanford and I at Duke, and we met in Kalamazoo. And she's now my wife, and she's why I'm here, and she's why I'm here tonight. <laughs> if I had not listened to what was not said, I wouldn't be here. Listening in the emptiness of life from a place where I've given up certainty, from a place where I don't know, where I'm willing to not know, and where I'm intentionally listening for a connection to life, listening to find my way connected with life, and trusting in that connection to life, even though I am uncertain and don't know. In that place, I can listen to what's not said. I can hear that which arises that wears us away, that erodes us, that shapes us, that sands down the places where we are stuck, sands down the places where we know, where it's all about Daniel, where everything that arises has something to do with the self that I have constructed, where everything that arises is something that is impermanent, and I hear it as impermanent instead of trying to hold on to it. Where everything that arises, I see the suffering in it instead of ignoring the suffering in it. That ultimate question was a time when I listened to what was not being said. I listened with my whole body I listened to what was in the air. I listened to what was in the people all around me and the surroundings around me. Being out in the woods, for example, can you hear the plants? Can you hear and see the stones move? Can you feel the air and what it's touching you with and teaching you with? Can you hear the plants 
from a place of silence. What is not being said is so much more powerful than the noise that's constantly beseeching us in life. Turning off the radio and the television and the music and allowing yourselves to be in meditation and hear something other than your mind. Mark Nepo describes this experience as an immersion of attention that all the religious traditions aspire to, each claiming in its own way that peace resides in this completeness which arises when our individual sense of being merges with the ongoing stream of being that is the heartbeat of the universe. So when I allow myself, my little self, to merge with all of life that's around me, all of the people in my life, to accept and be open and uncertain about who they are, as opposed to knowing who they are, and uncertain about who I am, as opposed to knowing who I am, so that I can begin to hear what's not being said. In that place, I start to connect with life, as opposed to connecting with my mind. And that allows me to touch the fourth place, the fourth step, which is not to. The great Indian sage Ramana Maharshi said, there are no others. That's a koan to live with for a long time, and it's been one for me. And it's also said in, by... Sinstong, in Verses on the Faith Mind, this little Bible that I've carried around for 30 years, when he says, Sinstong was the third Zen patriarch, to come directly into harmony with this reality, just simply say when doubt arises, not to. In this not to, nothing is separate Nothing is excluded, no matter when or where. Enlightenment means entering this truth. So if I'm with you, and in that environmental mediation, if I had been listening from Daniel knows and Daniel's right, I would have been listening from certainty, I would have been listening not for a connection to them, not for a connection to life, but from a judgmental place where I was pointing out to them how they were disconnected from life. I would not be listening for what was not said. I would be listening for what I needed to say to them. And I would have been listening from, I'm over here and I'm the one who knows and I need to let you know what's going on that's wrong with you and how come you're in this mess instead of from not to, from connection, from uncertainty, 
from deep, non-separated relationship. And because in that moment I was listening from these four places, they got it. They didn't get judgment from me. They heard voiced what was not being said. That the stuck place on both sides was their suing within 15 months when they had agreed to wait 24. And so they made huge concessions and appropriate concessions. And the case settled. The case resolved. It was another time in my life when I was in the basic training in the army and having grown up in the mountains in South Carolina, I was deeply connected with the woods. And so being in basic training, although it was really hard for me, any time I got to be in the woods made a whole big difference. And off we would go on these very difficult treks where we had to wander from place to place on a compass. But I could feel my connection. I could feel my connection and I could go to the places in the woods where I needed to go in that basic training. We all have a place like that in our lives where we feel safe and connected where we have learned intuitively to give up the certainty of being right, where we have learned to listen for what connects us by giving up that certainty, and where we have learned and been willing to listen for what's not said so that we can be in a space of not to. Uncertainty opens us to connection to life, opens us to hearing what is not said so that we can deeply experience not to. Not being separated from ourselves, not being separated from others, not being separated from life. Mary Oliver, in her most recent book, Blue Horses, describes this experience in her beautiful, poetic way in a poem entitled, The Fourth Sign of the Zodiac. Why should I have been surprised? Hunters walk the forest without a sound. The hunter strapped to his rifle, the fox on his feet of silk, the serpent on his empire of muscles, all move in a stillness, hungry, careful, intent just as the cancer entered the forest of my body without a sound. The question is, what will it be like after the last day? 
Will I float into the sky? Or will I fray within the earth or a river? Remembering nothing. How desperate I would be if I couldn't remember the sun rising, if I couldn't remember trees, rivers, if I couldn't even remember, beloved, your beloved name. I know you never intended to be in this world, but you're in it all the same. Here we are. How did we get here? Who knows? But we're here. So why not get started immediately? I mean, belonging to it. Why not get started immediately? I mean, belonging to it. Why do we hang on to our separation, to our rightness, to our certainty? Every place I know, I can't belong to life. I can't be connected because I already know. So I can't listen for what's not being said. I can't feel the intuitive connections of not to. From every place that I'm certain, I don't belong. And so we go through life with this deep sense of not belonging. And the paradox is that in order to experience and sense our belongingness, we must give up the certainty of our not belongingness. We must give up the certainty of our knowing so that we can hear our connection to life by listening to what is not being said from a place of not to. So why not get started immediately? I mean belonging to it. There is so much to admire, to weep over, and to write music or poems about. Bless the feet that take you to and fro. Bless the eyes and the listening ears. Bless the tongue, the marvel of taste. Bless touching. You could live a hundred years. It's happened. Or not. I am speaking from the fortunate platform of many years, none of which I think I ever wasted. Do you need a prod? Do you need a little darkness to get you going? Let me be as urgent as a knife then and remind you of Keats, so single of purpose and thinking for a while he had a lifetime. Late yesterday, yesterday afternoon in the heat, all the fragile blue flowers in bloom in the shrubs in the yard next door had tumbled from the shrubs and lay wrinkled and fading in the grass. But the, this morning, the shrubs were full of blue flowers again. But this morning, the shrubs were full of blue flowers again. There wasn't a single blue flower on the grass. How, I wondered, did they roll or crawl back to the shrubs and then back up the branches that fiercely wanting as we all do just a little more of life? Give up certainty. 
listen for your connection to life from a place of listening for what is not being said so that you can experience not to. Let's sit for just a moment. And notice the mind's tendency to try to figure it out. Instead, simply take one of these four, whichever one rings for you, and live into it as a question this holiday season. Thank you so much for being here tonight. It's wonderful to 